Finance is absolutely one of the most popular topics at TechEmergence.com. We have visitors who have bookmarked just our subsection on finance when they hover over industries and click on finance and industries. And there's people that only visit that section of our site. In terms of podcast listeners, London and New York rank high among the cities who tune in to our audio programs here. And if there's one thing that all finance folks likely have in common, it's an aversion to risk, or at least a yearning to better measure risk. This is something that's important for people in banking, in financial services, in insurance. And that's exactly what we're covering this week on the AI and Industry Podcast. This week, we interview Dr. Sanmay Das, who got his PhD at MIT and now teaches at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, Sanmay was working with government agencies on better assessing credit risk and understanding how banks manage that risk. And this week, we explore uh, two facets about understanding and making sense of financial risk with machine learning. First, um, how are banks uh, and other uh, financial institutions making better sense of risk predictions with machine learning. What are the old models and what are the new models and what kinds of new facets of data and new elements of decision making are being added to these machine learning models to better predict someone's ability to pay back on a loan or specifically in Sanmay's case here to make good on the debts they might have on their credit card. Um, So how does that actually work? What are the real sea changes there? And then number two, what does that mean moving forward? For those of us who may take out a loan in the future, for those of us who have credit card debt in some way, shape, or form, um, how will the future of finance sort of evolve as the technologies and machine learning improve and improve and make better sense of predicting who's actually going to pay and who isn't? What are the real ramifications in business? I think that's probably something relevant for almost all the business leaders tuned in on the podcast here, and I certainly hope it's helpful for you. So without further ado, I'm Dan Fagella, and this is Sanmay Das of Washington University here on AI and Industry. So Sanmay, finance is one of the big focuses for us here in tech emergence. We have folks in sort of the insurance space who are looking to assess risk and the banking space who are looking to assess risk. But I know that this happens for governments as well. And maybe there's some lessons to be learned right around the time of the big financial crisis and 2008. I know you were involved in a a pretty major project to kind of assess credit risk in the country. Talk us through a little bit of sort of what the initiative was there for some context, and we'll talk about what you were able to do with that data. Sure. This is a very interesting project because I worked with a major U.S. financial regulator who actually collected monthly data on credit card accounts from most of the large U.S. financial institutions that issue credit cards. And so, you know, this is the era of big data, and this is truly big data. And so the question becomes, are there things that we can do by actually having this very fine-grained, individualized data on individual credit card accounts over time that maybe we couldn't do with sort of more global, you know, traditional measures of risk. And so we began to ask this question of, can we apply machine learning methods to better understand who are the people who are holding these credit card accounts and what kinds of risks do they pose? But also at a broader level, because we have this institutional information, which is the portfolios of major players in the credit card industry, we can also engage other questions that say, okay, what can machine learning tell us about the strategies that these banks are using to manage their credit risk? Do different banks have different outlooks in terms of what kinds of risks they're being exposed to from their credit card portfolio and so on and so forth? You know, these questions have become much more significant and important in the context of what's happened 
since the Great Recession and the financial crisis that triggered it, one of the major things that's implicated in the Great Recession was this idea that, okay, we have these mortgage-backed securities, which are essentially taking mortgage loans and repackaging them into other debt instruments. And that often happens with credit cards as well. So it's not just the value of the portfolio that's important, right? It's the fact that, that these loans are actually being repackaged and then sold over and over again. So there could be major systemic risk implications even beyond the actual sort of, you know, risk of the dollar amount that is outstanding credit on these credit card accounts. And so the idea of using machine learning to approach this was, I think, very new for government agencies and for many of the banks that were involved. And yeah, it was really interesting and fun for me to get to be the uh, the machine learning person on this project as we went through it. And so we'll dive a little bit more into this. You're bringing up an apt point to kind of tee us off. Since sort of the Great Recession, there's more emphasis on sort of an understanding of underlying credit risk and maybe being able to have earlier warning systems or stave off risk at an earlier phase, because it sounds like with the complexity of the financial instruments, namely the mortgage-backed securities, there's plenty of great documentaries about the financial crash of 2008 or so if people want to dig into what mortgage-backed securities are about. Horrendously boring unless you're into that kind of stuff, but interesting nonetheless because it affected all of us. It sounds like with the complexity of these instruments, maybe it became harder and harder to find an obvious answer to how much risk are we really tackling here? And maybe sort of traditional measures were failing to detect that with the kinds of securities that were, in, in this sense, being packaged and traded. Is that safe to say that maybe those obfuscated some of the obvious risks and, and were harder to detect, so now we need kind of deeper methods of picking up on what is truly risk? I think that that's an absolutely correct statement. Of course, I mean, I will. the caveat here is that that's not exactly what we're doing. What we're doing is really trying to better assess the risk at the baseline that can then become part of these more complex instruments. I think it's very, very important to understand these complex instruments better. But it's like we say in the AI world, garbage in, garbage out, right? So the better your estimate of what the risk is on the individual components of these portfolios, the better any model will be at figuring out the overall systemic risk is. But that's only a small part of it. I think that, you know, it's also important to really understand the complexities of what goes on. But that wasn't the side of it that we were really speaking to with our work on machine learning for assessing the portfolios of individuals who held credit cards and therefore the bank's portfolios. Got it. So what I think is going to be really useful here is we'll talk a little bit about what the value of this was for the government agency, you know, regulating this stuff, and then also sort of what the value of these kinds of technologies could be in finance broadly because clearly I mean technologies of this kind are there's a pretty big push to bring machine learning talent into the big in insurance and banking folks anybody that's managing risk obviously machine learning for modeling in this space is pretty high value so I want to talk about both but maybe before we do I wonder if there's an easy way to kind of describe what the previous sort of modeling structures were like in terms of credit risk obviously if you know somebody's credit card statement month after month, and you know individual purchases, individual locations for an individual person, transaction sizes, companies they buy from, online, offline, all that stuff. I mean, that becomes really robust and interesting. But clearly, that degree of granularity was not always possible and probably is not the norm today. In as much detail as I guess you think is worth a business person understanding, how did this used to get done in terms of these broad models for credit risk uh, for an individual? Sure. So I actually have to speak to two different things on that. So the first is that an individual bank will have all of that information, which is basically like, you know, what are exactly all of the purchases that you made? Where 
did you make the purchases? What were the dollar values and so on and so forth? And that is incredibly useful. In fact, there's been prior work that shows that that information can be used very well using machine learning techniques, again, to assess the risk that somebody is likely to default on their uh, on their credit card debt. And I can talk a little bit more about that in a second. In the work that we were doing, we actually don't have the detailed data of all the purchases that a person is making. What we have is essentially the the top line figures that you would see on monthly statements. So you would get to see information about, okay, you know, what is your outstanding balance? What was your previous payment? How many days late did you make a payment if you made a late payment and so on and so forth, which is still actually a lot of information. And then the other thing that we had was that we were able to cross-correlate this with data from the credit bureaus, which is the standard information that you would get about somebody's overall credit worthiness, for example, when you apply for a credit card and so on and so forth. So we were able to build a data set that essentially for each individual had something on the order of 190 almost individual data items per month, which is which is already a lot, right? So we don't have access to the information on, you know, what exactly they're buying and from which retailer. Okay, got it, yep. But we do get to do that. So prior to what we were doing, people would basically use what we call linear models, which is essentially if you've ever taken, you know, the most basic uh, statistics class, you learn linear regression as your first thing that essentially says, okay, can I come up with a weighted sum of these things in some manner that will give me a good prediction? Now, machine learning models are able to capture much more complex interactions between these variables. And so we use what are called random forests, which are decision trees that can actually build fairly complex dependencies among things in doing these predictions. And in fact, the first question that we had to ask in order to pursue this was, is there benefit to using these kinds of more sophisticated machine learning models over the more standard linear models like regression models and logistic regression? And so that was really this horse race question was the first thing that we had to answer to convince people that, you know, this kind of methodology is even useful. It was quite successful. We showed that there are significant benefits from using these more complex machine learning models in terms of being able to predict who is more likely to default on their credit cards going forward. So in the next three months or in the next six months, you know, who are the people who are going to default on their credit cards, which can be very important because a very common behavior if somebody's going to default on their credit card is that they're going to basically run up their balance. So they're going to like, you know, keep buying stuff until they hit their credit limit. And then the bank is on the hook for a lot more money than they may have been otherwise. Once we had done that, we were able to then say, okay, given that we validated that these machine learning models work well, you know, what are the broader implications that we can draw for these predictions? But just to sort of, you know, answer your earlier point, there's at least one use case where a particular bank collaborated with some folks from finance and from machine learning to do individualized predictions for that particular bank's portfolio and figure out, can they do active management? Which is to say, can they figure out when they should be cutting credit lines optimally so that they're mitigating exactly this risk that somebody's going to run up their credit card balance and then default on card? That's interesting because yeah, you might imagine, and I know this wasn't exactly what you did, but like you said, this is something that has been done, and it's worth just touching on very quickly. You Absolutely. might imagine that maybe if someone's going to run all the way to the wire, I don't know, maybe you're going to see them stack up on essentials like um, bread, milk, diapers, that kind of thing, right? Like maybe you're going to see big, big spikes and sort of overstocking on that stuff if somebody knows they're about to run out of money to spend here. Um, maybe there's other kinds of patterns. I imagine... My guess is, and I know this wasn't, again, your work, my guess is that would unveil a lot of very uncouth patterns, very sort of (laughs) not polite patterns about what people buy at what times, maybe even things that are kind of male and female different. 
that are like really mm -hmm. not the kind of stuff you want to publish because okay. they seem like inherently biased or racist or negative in some sense. But my guess is that would unveil a whole host of just horrendously uncouth commonalities and patterns that probably you'd want to keep pretty tight within your bank. That, that's my guess. So I would also guess that. I mean, one thing that I will say that, that we did do, because this prior work existed and is sort of related to that, one thing we did was we tried to analyze from our data whether banks do different things along these lines. That is, because we have these entire credit card portfolios from banks, we can ask the question of, are there banks that actually engage in active management strategies like this and banks that do not? Or are they all doing it or none of them doing it? And we saw that there's significant differences across banks in terms of how proactive they are at doing exactly this kind of active management strategy. So some of them will be managing credit card accounts very actively. That is to say, like regularly raising or lowering people's credit limits. Yes, Whereas yes, other yes, banks will yes. typically just set up a credit limit and then, you know, let things go. And that's very interesting in terms of the risk profile that that creates, because it's possible that, so, you know, the typical way of thinking about portfolio risk would be to say, okay, give me, you know, who are all the people who you've issued credit cards to? Let me take the distribution of their credit scores or something like that. And that gives me a risk profile, right? And so in that case, you might think that, oh, okay, so, you know, this is a bunch of people with good credit scores. That's a good risk profile. This is a bunch of people with bad credit scores. That's a bad credit profile. But if the bank that's issuing to people with bad credit scores is also managing them much more actively, maybe that's actually not as bad of a risk profile as you would think it is because they're actually on top of it, right? And they're maintaining uh, uh, their overall level of risk by monitoring these portfolios, whereas maybe the bank that issued a lot of credit cards to people with good credit scores could get badly trapped if, for example, there's a financial crisis or something like that. And then even people with good credit scores are suddenly losing their houses and so on and so forth. And so these are the kinds of things that this kind of analysis allowed us to do in our paper without speculating on what are the individual patterns, which yeah. I'm sure yeah. there yeah. are lots of interesting patterns that would predict <laughs> yeah. that, which you know, people probably don't want to hear about. The, the, the most politically incorrect podcast we could ever have. Yeah, I, I would love to know that, but I'm sure that zero people that work at those companies would be excited to talk about just the horribly <laughs> uncouth uh, <laughs> patterns that would be yielded from that kind of data. But one quick question to clarify, then we'll talk about the ROI yeah. of this project and we'll wrap up. The additional data that you folks had to add on onto the general kind of linear regression model. And for the folks who are listening in, if you type in algorithms into the search bar at Tech Emergence, we, we've kind of done a big breakdown of kind of the common uh, machine learning algorithms that you'll sort of read about and kind of give them very simple descriptions, linear regression being one of them, just so you don't have to know the real lingo to kind of follow us in this interview. But so most people are doing kind of that, that general linear regression. If I'm not mistaken, you're using more complex algorithms and adding the data of these sort of monthly reports from folks, sort of how much they've paid off, how late they paid, how much was on the card, things like that. Was that kind of the addition? Was that the main additive to the model? Was it these monthly reports? Or were there other elements that made what you were doing richer and more robust than what was being done before with kind of basic linear regression? Sure. So just a minor point. So I said linear models. The actual model that we were comparing against is something called logistic regression, which basically okay. transforms a linear regression into a probability score. But basically, actually, we wanted to do as fair a comparison as possible. So I think that there's sort of two aspects to this. One is that, like, you know, we now have this data available, right? It's entirely possible. So we were in a unique position because we actually have this data available across banks. Yeah, Any that's individual cool. bank would that's only cool. have the data for their own bank. Yep. Right. So that's that's sort of one difference. 
But we wanted to make the comparison as fair as possible. So actually, we didn't give the machine learning algorithms any data that we did not give the logistic regression model. We gave them both sort of the same variables that we constructed for these people to see. And so I think that there's two things that this shows. One is that given this data, these more complex machine learning models like random forests are actually better than logistic regression at at predicting default in this particular setting. And the other thing that I think it shows is that like, you know, we don't necessarily show this, but this I think this is true, is that the reason why we're now able to have success with these kinds of models is that we just actually have a lot of data that we didn't have in the past. And so, you know, many of these machine learning models rely on having big data sets that they can learn from. And I think that's a big benefit that we are able to exploit over here. But given that that data is there, it's quite clear from our work that the machine learning models do a better job of prediction than these sort of standard models that people have been using for years and years and years. Another interesting thing that we found was that actually the different banks hold somewhat different portfolios, though. So so you can't just learn a model on one bank and think that it's going to apply yeah. in terms of yeah. default from a different bank. There are definitely sort of, you know, individual portfolio effects. So. And, and I imagine there's effects in geo region. There's maybe even effects, you know, in age. And there's probably all kinds of ways that you'd want to break things down and, instead of putting everybody in the same bucket. But I guess what you're saying is maybe even similar humans that bank at a different bank may, in fact, for whatever reason, sort of have slightly different patterns we'd need to pick up on. And so people should be aware of that, that really generalizing right. is not safe. Right. And there may be selection bias in here as well, which is the question of like, you know, who is the target clientele of one bank versus totally, another? Yeah. Th- yep, yep, yep. That can make a big difference in there as well. Yeah. Who are they marketing to, et cetera? So really quickly, exactly. as we wrap up in terms of sort of the intended yield from a regulatory perspective, like how this could be useful in you know running a better country here in the United States, what was sort of the the desired outcome, and why was this handy for regulators? What's made it worth the big investment in this crazy project here? Right. So actually, you know, I don't want to speculate too much, but from what I've heard, this is actually slowly being put into use by the by the regulators. So I'm I'm very happy about that because we all want to do stuff that actually impacts the world. But totally. uh, you know, one example is one that I was bringing up earlier which is that we were able to quantify this idea that there's some banks that engage in a lot more active management of credit card portfolios than other banks. And so a traditional way of measuring risk, like, for example, you know, some statistics on the credit scores of people who have these credit cards or the amount of outstanding debt may not capture the actual risk of a portfolio as well as something that takes into account sort of how actively managed that portfolio is, for example. So this heterogeneity of risk management practices across these institutions, therefore, you know, has serious implications. And then that could really factor into things like systemic risks. So for example, if people are bundling these credit cards into securitized portfolios on top of that, which are, you know, these portfolios that try to aggregate and then chunk up and sell, typically you would do that by saying, okay, this is a credit card of somebody who has a credit score of 650 or 700 or something like that. But it might be very different if it's a credit card that is being held by one bank as opposed to a credit card that's being held by another bank just because of the ways in which they manage risk and therefore the amount of liability. And now, obviously, for an individual credit card, that's not going to make a huge difference. But if you then are bundling all credit cards from one bank, you may be exposing yourself to a very different risk profile than if you're bundling all the credit cards from a different bank, for example. And so I think that one of the big benefits over here is that it gives you sort of a more nuanced way of looking at what is the actual risk of the credit card portfolios that these banks are holding. 
and I imagine that, and I don't understand the regulatory process in finance at all. I've never really worked formally I'm, I'm in that. I'm certainly not an expert in that either. <laughs> yeah. But I imagine it's, it, you know, the folks who have contextual knowledge there would probably know. But it seems to me that having a general pulse on the level of risk being carried by different banks, which like you said, is now more nuanced because there's a, a better degree of understanding of how well management is being applied to sort of gauging and, and adjusting to this risk in real time. Having a pulse on mm -hmm. that across the major banks is probably pretty important for regulators who want to know what to do with interest rates or if rules should be changed for how risk is managed because things are getting a little bit too sketchy. I imagine those are the kinds of calibrations that exactly. could be made. Okay. No, that is exactly correct because, I mean, the regulators are, in fact, you know, there are sort of rules and regulations that have to be followed, but this would give a better understanding of what is the actual level of risk that a particular institution is engaging in, in terms of their credit card portfolio, as opposed to much simpler methods of analyzing that. So from the regulatory perspective, that's a big deal. You can also actually think about the value of this from the bank's perspective to say, and, and remember, you know, we, we talked about this earlier, the banks actually have this much more detailed data. Where are you buying stuff? Like, yeah. what is all this? And so if there are banks out there that are not actively managing portfolios, that might really be a business opportunity for them to say, okay, you know, if we do somewhat better risk management over here, which doesn't necessarily need to be too expensive, then we might be able to cut the amount of risk that we're actually carrying. Huh, yeah. Um, so from a, I guess, a business perspective, this would be the right point to close out on. Having a more <laughs> dialed in than maybe a traditional linear or logistic regression approach, maybe it would allow them to do a better job of that active management you were talking about, sort of knowing who do we need to reel back, who are we okay to open up with, so that we have kind of an aggregately more optimized portfolio in terms of the risk level we actually want to carry and in terms of kind of the margins we want to be able to hit as a company. It sounds like better predictions could obviously help with that. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that we kind of learned is that incorporating some macro factors into the predictions tends to improve predictability, not uniformly across the board, but for many of the banks. And so, for example, if you take into account, for example, what is the house price index in a particular zip code, that can actually help you predict the levels of default that you're going to get. Now, this may lead to questions of fairness and like, you know, what are we allowed to do and so yeah, on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. At least in terms of predictability, there are certain macro factors that help to better predict where defaults are likely to be coming from. Huh. And, and th that's curious as well, because it seems somewhat inevitable, Senmei, that these technologies will become more and more prevalent in finance, that everybody will experience some pressure, you know, insurance companies, banks, to really gauge their risk at a more granular level, to be able to manage yep. it and to, and to stay in business. When everybody sort of levels up, their ability to, to hyperdial their risk management, you know, to the person, to the purchase, to, yep. you know, how much more or less they have. What's the overall effect of a world that's more like that? I mean, that's two, three times more granular than it is today. Is that all upside for both business and people? Or are there potentially some negative consequences there? I don't really know. I'm just interested in your intuition. You know, I'm a little bit scared about it. And so, and there's a big movement in machine learning for what people are talking about as fairness, accountability, and transparency to really think through the implications of these algorithms. Obviously, I work in this area. I'm very enthusiastic about the potential, but at the same time, sometimes I feel like, you know, we're almost at the equivalent of a Manhattan Project moment for AI in some ways, because... Yeah. 
There's yeah. a lot of ways in which it can be used. There's a lot of really great uses you can put it to. But also, and I mean in a much more insidious way, it could affect society in ways that we don't fully understand. For example, taking something like this into account, what if banks were micromanaging these things and it turns out to have a severe disparate impact on one community versus the other? And so, you know, credit to a particular population really dries up. Now, that may be the right thing to do in terms of prediction accuracy, but that may be completely the wrong thing to do in terms of like, you know, the societal goals. So I think this is one area where we really need to think carefully about the interaction of fairness, what the government should be regulating in terms of what information you're allowed to use and what you're allowed to make decisions based on, and the business value of making sort of the best decisions that you can. But I think this is going to be one of the central questions that machine learning practitioners, ethicists, philosophers, regulators, and finance people need to come together to think about in the coming years as this kind of risk management gets more and more granular and we get better and better at prediction problems. I couldn't agree more. I think there's going to be so much pressure to adopt these. We, we recently partnered with the, the IEEE who just put together a big series of principles and tenets that that they're trying to figure out and sort through in terms of algorithmic transparency and managing privacy along with AI, in terms of sort of what's currently being juggled there and what kind of principles are being experimented with as possible sort of soft or hard regulation for these things. But it is definitely a work in progress, just like the technology itself. So I'm with you. I hope that the, the society we're building becomes as much improved as maybe the margins and efficiencies of the financial institution that are using this tech. So fingers crossed and something to chew on for the finance folks who are tuned in. San May, that's all that we have for time, but I sincerely appreciate you sharing your insights with us here on AI and industry. So thank you so much. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.